Everyone's looking, everyone hides, everyone's telling, but everyone lies. We're changing the subject, we're turning away, away from the heart of it all. You say you are happy, do you think this is fun? Well, it's only a firefly to the light of the sun. You say this is living. You feel so alive. Well, you know everything dies. Even my wonder, even my fear, only amount to a couple of tears. There is a rhythm. It's near and it's far. It flows through the heart of us. Seem that different? 'Cause nothing has changed. Try to remember. Try to remember. Hey, everybody! Thank you for listening to our special tribute episode to the late, fantastic producer Rupert Hine. Now, as regular listeners know, we had the fantastic fortune of having Rupert on here twice. The first time was a couple of years ago when Rupert and I had what I think is one of our very best conversations about his entire career. He was so perfect. Everybody I brought up to him, he had a fantastic story to accompany it that was just so delicious. I loved it, and so we brought him back a year ago, almost around the same time, to do a deep dive with us for the Fixes Reach the Beach album. Hard to believe after that that he's gone. There were no signs that I knew of, but of course I didn't know him that well. I just did those two interviews, but they were a lot of fun, and they felt they felt bonding in a way. Well, as we've what we've started to do、uh, now that we know a lot of people, thank goodness, is that when someone who matters to us passes on, we want to bring a former guest back that would know them and、uh, discuss that person's legacy. And it made perfect sense for us, I thought, to bring back Duncan Sheik. Now, Duncan. His first two albums were produced by Rupert, and we discussed those when Duncan was on the show. I think it was last February. That hit "Barely Breathing" that never went away for years. That was produced by Rupert. So,、um, as we often do, I allowed Duncan to pick one of his favorite songs that was produced by Rupert. I said you can pick one of yours or somebody else's, and he picked this one, and he explains why here in the beginning. So I hope you guys will enjoy this conversation, and if you haven't done it already, go back and listen to those Rupert episodes because they're so—they're perfect. They are perfect. He allowed us to have perfect moments with him, and I will be grateful for that forever. All right, here's Duncan. Okay, well, so to kick it off, I, I had asked you, and I don't know if you're—if you're ready for this, but off the top of your head, maybe even when you think back of Rupert, do you have a favorite? Song that he produced or put out on his own, and it can be one of your own. What is for you one of the signature Rupert、uh, projects? Well, so yeah, I mean, at the risk of of being self-involved, I'll just I'll, I'll talk about one of my songs just because I have the most firsthand knowledge of of the process.、Um, But、uh, I think a song like "Reasons for Living"、mm-hmm. went through a really interesting process. From when I the, the demo of it in LA, you know, whenever it was, probably 
and it was like a sort of like a like a very staccato kind of eight note rock guitar thing with like a much more sort of alternative rock drum part and you know i mean the chords were the same and the melody was the same and the words were the same but they were you know the the demo that i made and the song that ended up on the record are two fundamentally very different things and you know rupert was you know i I always had this sort of fear of but love of electronic music you know certainly at that time in the mid 90s it sort of wasn't really in vogue you know it was much more about guitars and sort of organic sounds and yeah and you know like synth pop in, in a certain way had sort of gone out of fashion you know but i love drum machines and synthesizers and sort of ambient sound you know sound so so rupert really kind of encouraged me to like deconstruct the song and you know, I had my trusty Roland Juno 106 with me, and I had like a Kurzweil K2000 and stuff like that. So, so you know, we we kind of made this much more layered kind of piano and electronic version of the song. And you know, I think it, and what's quite cool about it is that because it went in that direction, then you know it got remixed by the likes. Senior Vasquez, and you know, it sort of had this double life as like a club hit as well. And in a way, that was like a real foreshadowing of you know of of my later interest in doing more fully electronic things. And and that sort of not that it gave me permission to do it, but it was just you know it was like okay, I I didn't need to sort of hide behind like oh I, you know the coolness of of guitars and yeah yeah <laughs> sort of rock snobbery of like guitars you, you know what I mean sure that's one of the things um, I find so interesting about you you're confirming this for me I still feel this way is that he is one of the seminal uh you know new wave producers specifically yeah of synth based yeah. you know bands like the fix and howard jones and everything and for him yeah. there is to my knowledge anyway there's almost nothing else in his discography that sounds like your debut album sounds and i just i yeah. i just have always felt like that's such an odd marriage and yet it turned out to be perfect he was the perfect yeah. guy to make your album sound as pretty and delicate and Lush, but lush is the wrong word. Um, I don't know, kind of moody, well, whatever. Sometimes, sometimes, yeah, sometimes yes. Lush. You know yeah, what I'm sometimes. saying? It's just, yes, it's, uh, yeah. he turned out to be the right guy to do what you, the perfect thing for you. And yet it's so different than everything else that he yeah. was so good at, you know? Yeah, totally. And, you know, it was interesting because I, you know, I mean, Rupert was somebody who I never you know, I never locked horns with him because he was such a gentle and polite and and kind of British in the best sense of the word, like just the loveliest man and human being. And and so it wasn't we, we never got in any arguments or disagreements, but we had, you know, serious conversations about what instrumentation was going to happen on the record. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that I was sort of intent on was that when we're, when we do string arrangements, they're going to be real strings and not, you know, synth strings, which, mm-hmm. you know, which sort of was a little bit Rupert's stock and trade. Like he was sort of used to just doing things with, you know, electronically in that department. And so, you know, it took a little, it took a little nudging, but then he made a round of calls and then he, and, and, and managed to, and got the, um, 
the recommendation of for Simon Hale, and then Simon came and did those string arrangements. And you know, so he, so that's another great thing about Rupert is that he was just he was very flexible, and it wasn't like he was trying to impose his aesthetic on the record. He just he wanted to make sure that, that I had the right kind of guidance as a you know as an right. artist who was, who was really my first time yeah. you know, making a full album. And and you know, interestingly. At that time, he had just sort of bought this chateau in France. So that's where we made the record. I and mean, it was, it's a beautiful sort of building, but you know, it wasn't a recording studio at all. Like we literally had to go rent a, a Neumann U87 and sort of rent Mike Cruz. And, and, you know, he had a bunch of ADATs, you know, Elisa's ADATs. This is very old digital technology uh-huh. and like a, a Mackie console. I mean, this is very sort of, you know, prosumer gear that we had just sort of shoved in the room. But, you know, we managed to, to make the stuff sound really good. We had a yeah. great, you know, couple of great engineers involved. And he made the experience really wonderful. And, you know, it was just nice not being, in a way, it was really nice being in this beautiful environment, but not with like the pressure of being like in a $2,000 a day sure. recording studio. You know, sure. there was something in a way that was a little bit casual about it that that was really great because you didn't you didn't feel this like intense pressure with every mm-hmm. take that you, mm-hmm. that you took yeah i um, can see that when you yeah. look back on rupert's i'm a, i'm assuming that prior to him coming on as your producer that you were a fan of the work that he had done yeah, definitely yeah yeah so yeah. when you think back what do you think is rupert's signature sound does and or does he have one? Because I know what I think of when I think of Rupert. He actually corrected me on it a little bit when I expressed it to him when we talked. But let me hear yours first. When you think of Rupert, what do you think of his signature sound? Or I don't know. Well, the first, yeah, the first things that I knew from him were were definitely Howard Jones' first two albums, and then the, the fixed records that he produced. And then, you know, sort of on the radio, I knew the Tina Turner stuff, but it, that wasn't necessarily right. my bag. I mean, I, right. Tina Turner's great, don't get me wrong. It, sure. it, wasn't, it wasn't really what I was listening to. And, and I appreciated it as a pop song and as, as pop production. But I, the, the Howard Jones was first record was something I, you know, when I was 14, 15 years old, I was like madly in love with that record. Same. And, and the fixed stuff was stuff I really liked. Of course, knowing his history, you know, funnily enough and you may know this but but when he started out like he was in a folk duo just you know like making acoustic guitar music just like my first record was <laughs> so i mean his very initial time you know and i think at one point you know he was making demos and i think like jimmy page came in as a session guitarist on one mm. of his things and no you know this is you know back in the day and he told me a very funny story that um he was at he and his partner i'm I'm gonna forget his his um his performing partner's name but oh right they, they were performing as a duo and and they were called in once to open up for an artist in some little club in london so they they were like great you know we'll open up for the show and they didn't even know who the artist was and they played their set and they played like a, a paul simon cover mm. and the audience sort of went deadly quiet <laughs> and um, and then at which point they sort of realized that they were opening for Paul Simon. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so, um, so that's funny. That's but great. Then I think, you know, 
and then Rupert sort of became very involved in in the technology and recording technology. And he had that he had a cool recording studio in I forget what part of England it was, the farmhouse or something was what it was called. Anyway, he he had a he had a really cool studio with with a group of people that a lot of those records that we're talking about were, were made in. And and he just got really into the technology and like early sampling technology and you know, he was you know, he had every single profit since, you know, right when it came out and he you know, he 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 did some really interesting stuff. He worked with these sort of prog artists. He yeah. you know, he and he worked with, you know, I mean some people you know, I guess when I saw some of the um tributes to him, they were talking about him being like post punk. I I don't I don't know. I mean, you know, Rupert, yeah. he wasn't against he wasn't against guitars. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't like necessarily against or for punk music. Like I, I, that doesn't seem like an accurate. I would agree. Kind of thing. He he, he was just a, you know he was somebody who had a a, a unique personal vision. Yeah. And you know he and it's funny at the time like when he played me some of his records, <laughs> you know when I was twenty five, twenty six, huh. I was a little bit like put off by them because they were so intellectual and so yes. kind of i'm so glad so, to hear so, you say that because so, i have this same reaction i've warmed up to the think man stuff is a little yeah, more accessible yeah. but that that stuff is it's a it's big brained it's a little out of yeah. reach for me yeah 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 exactly so i was a little bit scared like oh no is he going to try and impose this this sort of aesthetic on my on my records but he didn't at all and the sort of the electronic stuff that that he did kind of suggest was really subtle and lovely. And it it wasn't, it wasn't sort of a stamp that was put on the record by any stretch. And, you know, even when we made humming, when we made the second record in Spain, which again was like a really beautiful, fun experience. And that was more of like a proper studio. And and at that point I was already starting, you know, I was, had been listening to the massive attack record and really wanting to do stuff that was more heavily, electronic and and Rupert in a funny way he was kind of like you know I don't think that you should really leap too far into this you know you have a sound and it's good to stretch yourself but you know I I think these songs are really beautiful as acoustic guitar and with the string arrangements so in a way he sort of he not that he pushed me but he he said these songs make more sense in a more similar vein to the first record than maybe you know, I had some high flute ideas about how yeah. I wanted humming to sound. Yeah, I can so, see um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's interesting when I talked to him. To me, well, first and foremost, I should say you mentioned Tina Turner, and that's obviously like his biggest commercial success. But that's more of an outlier mm. when I think of him and his work. Yeah. Because what I think of is primarily the fix and that kind mm. of sound, and the yeah. those, especially the Reach the Beach album and stuff. To me. Yeah. And this is what I mentioned to Rupert when I talked to him, that there's a little bit of like a, almost like a frostiness, a little bit of a cold. Yeah. Those synths are not like warm, like a Trevor Horn synth yeah. would be. They're, they're, yeah. It's all right angles, you know, it's very yeah. pointed. Yeah. And when I said this to him, yeah. he said, well, I, I think what it is, is that it's more that it's clean. And I thought, yes, yeah. okay, that's a, that's a better way of looking at it. It's not, there's not fluff or flourishes. It's very clean and straight. But I came around to, well, first of all, I think it was, that was like the ideal sound of that time, that kind of like mm. early eighties 
Cold War paranoia. Yeah. You know what I mean? It just fits yeah, it so sure. perfectly. But uh, anyway, yeah. he uh, and then his solo stuff was a lot like that too. Like you said, very intellectual, yeah, I mean, academic. Yeah, and, yeah, and very sort of angular. Yes, that's it. How those those synth parts were, and and very kind of sharp, sharp pointed sounds, and you know, I mean, I, it's cool. I mean, it's really you know now you know with the benefit of hindsight, I see that stuff as as really interesting and really mm-hmm. great. But, you know, and, and certainly in the context of The Fix, he made it work really great because they were such great pop songs, right. you know, but you needed that framework of the pop song, I think, to really to sort of soften the edges of what he was doing. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. yeah. But then there's also bands like Saga and Rush and he made right. and then there was, you know, he he dated and worked with Stevie Nicks for a little while. And so right. there's. It really goes all over the place when you, well, let me ask you this first, actually. I think, uh, did he, I can't remember if you mentioned this before or not. Did he influence your Buddhism? Well, so what, so how that sort of works out is that, I, you know, I, I've been practicing since I was 19. Okay. And when I, when I first went over to, to do like the pre-production session, this was like, October of 1995, I went over to England to do a pre-production session with Rupert, and while and I went to the Buddhist Center in in it's like north of London. It's in this place called Maidenhead, and I just went there because I knew there was this meeting there, and it and just this by total coincidence, Howard Jones had also started practicing. I guess maybe three years prior. And he was there at that meeting and he played a song just like on the piano and sang a song like for this group of like 40 or 50 people at this Buddhist meeting. And so I, I went up and introduced myself and I said, you know, Howard, you don't know me, but I'm, I'm making a record with Rupert Hine. And, you know, and this is just so amazing that you're here. And, you know, again, Howard, also one of the nicest people in the world, he was just like, Oh, that's amazing. Like, let's hang out this afternoon. And he like took me to his house and, you know, we spent the afternoon listening to music and he was great guys. And then Tina is also Buddhist. And, you know, and, and so, you know, and also specifically the same kind of Buddhism, we all chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. And so Rupert was, it was a sort of running joke that he was always surrounded by these Buddhists, but he was, (laughs) Very, very like firmly sort of atheist, like uh, because I think he had had maybe some bad, he had some bad feelings certainly about Anglican Christianity right. and Christianity in general, and and that sort of like that sort of went. He just felt like all religions were nonsense, which is a very also a very English mm-hmm. sort of point of view. Sure, um, and. And but he did say, you know, if he was going to be any religion, he would be Buddhist. But he, but he was staunchly kind of <laughs> right. anti-religious, right? Not in the Christopher Hitchens vein. Yeah, I, think, I could see know. that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't remember if he influenced that. What do you think his legacy is going to be? Because, like I said, other than Tina and Stevie, to some degree, his stuff remains on alternative radio for uh, other than rush, but still, I just don't know that he ever, you know, if he had worked with five more Tina's at the time, things would be different, but he didn't, you know, and uh, he didn't produce Brian Adams and Huey Lewis. So we get what we get. And uh, I think he's one of the most important producers in terms of alternative rock music, 
But I don't know. Yeah. I'm wondering if his legacy, you know, exceeds beyond that. What do you think? Well, he, you know, it's funny. He just he does sort of fit in these cracks, yeah. uh, but in a, in a really great way. Like he, you know, he's. It, it's tricky because there were obviously those people in in the late '80s that were making these big records. You know, the Pat Leonard's of the mm-hmm. world and and with Mutt Lang and right. you know, all those people like that. And and Rupert. You know, he he kind of he had a respect for those producers, but he also felt a real distance from them. You know, it just it wasn't that wasn't that interesting to him. He always wanted to do stuff that was off the beaten path. And if it happened to become a hit on the radio, great. But he was that was so not his goal. You know, that was so not how he thought. And even like Barely Breathing, both of us, Rupert and I sort of had a, a little bit of like a a kind of a, a distance from the song. Like we knew it was a good song and it might be a good pop song, but we both sort of felt like, okay, this is just this pop song on the record. You know? right, right. It wasn't like, it wasn't like something that we were shooting for. And yeah. for Rupert, it was just like, well, this is going to make the people at Atlantic happy. So, so be it, you know? <laughs> right. um, but I think, you know, that was one of his great qualities is just wanting to do stuff that, that's unique and, and unique to the artist and, he didn't want it to be cookie cutter in any kind of fashionable way. I mean, in terms of his legacy, you know, he's, he's somebody who I think will be, you know, yeah, he, it's, you know, he's, he's not going to be talked about like some of these big mega producers of the eighties, but right. you know, frankly, the music he made is just more interesting. It is. That's um, it. Yeah. That's the word. And yeah. so, you know, to me, that's a better, you know, better place to hang your hat. Yeah. Ultimately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that he's speaking to specific people and they love him for it versus speaking to everyone and being kind of faceless, I guess, in the process. Yeah. And, and the other really interesting thing about Rupert that people maybe don't know about is that he was always really interested in the kind of business side of how music was distributed and how artists might be kind of paid. He was always trying to find a better system. And especially when, you know, once the sort of digital revolution came along and, and the label system started to kind of like disintegrate, he was always trying to find a way to make sure that artists, um, both writers and artists were getting paid properly for their work. And he, you know, he had some pretty advanced schemes that I know he was in the middle of trying to develop when he passed away and he had been working on it for a few years. So, you know, he was somebody who until the very end was, was always working and thinking about different ways of, of distributing music and making sure that artists could continue to make interesting music and make a living at it. True. So he, you know, in a way, very deeply moral person. Yeah. That may end up proving to be, a big part of his legacy as well, you know, is whatever fight that he waged for on behalf of people like you. Let me ask you this. Did you know he was sick? Had you stayed in touch with him? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the last time I had lunch with him was maybe about two, two and a half years ago. I mean, I'd seen him a few times over the past, five years. I've probably seen him half a dozen times over the past five years. And, you know, we were talking a lot about this sort of digital technology stuff that he was working on. Um, but I knew he was, 
you know, I could tell he was frail and, and I was in contact with his sort of significant other Bay. And so we knew what was coming. And, really? um, oh. Yeah. So, I mean, again, I mean, he's, he was, you know, certainly young, you know, young to go at 72. Yeah. I mean, he's my, he's my mom's age actually. Yeah. So that part of it is, is sad, but you know, he, he really did. He did it. He did so much great work and he worked, you know, to, to a very end. So, you know, there's some people, you know, if you look at somebody like Mark Hollis, for example, you know, where, I mean, not, not, this is not a judgment or a criticism, but the last pretty much 20 years of his life, he, you know, he didn't really, didn't really work. And, and that's, you know, I think that's really sad, you know, whereas Rupert was really always right. know, in the trenches to the bitter yeah. end. That's true. Yeah, I uh, I don't know if you know what he died of. Uh, he and I talked, we did, we did two long, great interviews, and the last one was a year ago, right around the same time. And, you know, I don't know him at all. He's a, I'm a small part of his life, but he's a big part of mine. But I had no idea. I mean, I didn't know. He didn't let on that he was sick. He seemed, in fact, he had been working in the garden when we talked. And so do you know, like, what health issues specifically he struggled with? Um, you know, I'm just going to say cancer because I don't know specifically oh, okay. which type. And, and, okay. and you know, I, I don't I don't know the details. Okay. I just knew that, you know, I'd gotten some communication during the last couple days of his life, you know, that, yeah. you know, that. That people knew that that was that was sure. coming soon. Okay. So, yeah. But as far as I know, you know, it was very peaceful and it was very. It sounds like and, it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I talked to a, I've talked to a couple other people who are friends with him, like you, and they had gotten to say goodbye or you know say I just spoke to him last week or whatever, which it sounds mm. like they were preparing for this moment and he was kind of saying his goodbyes to certain people i am curious if you have a favorite let's close it out on this do you have a favorite rupert story or is there something some bit of wisdom he passed along or something funny he said or a meal you shared is there something well <laughs> there's there's i mean there's a there's a story that's a little bit outre but i but i um i <laughs> That, well, I mean, I guess it's not that. I, the, the, I guess the, the funny story that he told me was that, you know, there was a certain time in the music business when it was kind of de rigueur that like somebody from the record label would come, you know, in the beginning of the day and, you know, leave a, a big bag of Coke, you know, in the, in the, in the control room. And, you know, that, that was just sort of their job. And, you know, uh -huh. and people would go about their business making the record and he was producing this artist. I forget who it was. And, and <laughs> they were working on some song, and, you know, they had been, you know, kind of, kind of working away at their stash of drugs. <laughs> and, and at a certain point, you know, like it about, you know, seven in the evening, you know, the the song was sort of like coming together and the, the artist like stood up and he's like, Rupert's like, this is not only the best piece of music that I've ever made, this is the best piece of music that has ever been made, period. <laughs> and and then they, and then apparently like they they kept sort of like working on the song, working on the song. 
And then, you know, it's like four o'clock in the morning and the drugs are all gone. And there's really not, the song probably doesn't sound any different than it did at eight o'clock. And the artist stands up and goes, Rupert, Rupert, this is the worst piece of music I've ever heard in my entire life. Ah, <laughs> uh, Coke dreams. Uh, I'm going to go over Rupert's whole discography now and just daydream of who that might have been. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, thank Um, you, Duncan. I knew you'd be the right guy for this. So thanks a lot. And just as always, thanks for being you. Thanks for all the good you put out in the world. You mean a lot to us. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Listen, my pleasure. And thanks. Thanks for calling me. You know, I didn't, I sadly did not get to say goodbye to him, although I was, you know, chanting for him certainly over those course of those last days. So I'm really happy to just be able to, you know, um, make my own tribute to him that's right me too well thank you all right there you have it duncan sheik and i discussing the great rupert hine i'm curious what your thoughts are if you want to communicate with us or send us a message duncan's very active on twitter you could tweet at him we just just let us know what you think about and uh what your memories of rupert hine are if you have any and what your favorite songs are i want to close it out with one of my favorite songs that rupert worked on that's kind of lesser known I think it was 1986, he produced a Canadian band called Eight Seconds. Now, long-time listeners may remember that around episode 25, I want to say, we had the lead singer of Eight Seconds on here, Andy Del Castillo. He's he's not in the music industry anymore at all. But um, those guys had kind of a little bit of a rabid fan base. They only ever put out two albums, and the first one, which is called Alma Cantar, had a, a mild hit single on it called Kiss You When It's Dangerous. Well, I love that album, Alma Contar. And uh, I wanted to pick a song off of that. So I went with this tune right here. It's called Zoe. And uh, I love this tune. Andy told us the story about this song when he was on the show. And Rupert produced it. So I just thought, let's, uh, let's go with this. I love this song and I wanted to share it with all of you. So thanks everybody. And uh, go out and listen to some of Rupert's music because it's the best. Whether it's something he produced, something he put out on his own, whatever it is, just bathe in some Rupert Hine for a while because he's a fantastic man. 